Hello, and welcome to the Woodard Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify. For more information about Expensify, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, Heather, we are back again. Um, uh, we had scaling new heights here for a little while. If you guys are looking at the date of this this podcast, we're now at the end of July and we've come out of the conference fog and looking forward to getting back into a good pattern here of you and I talking yes. often about a lot of awesome things. So, um, yeah. yeah. So what are we talking about today, Heather? So today we're talking about innovation in accounting firms and the importance of innovation and how we can cultivate a culture of innovation within our firms. So I, as you know, I have a master's in innovation management from Northeastern University. And the reason I actually went after that degree, Joe, was because I recognized the fact that you know, accountants were kind of driving the technology for a long time. And now it almost feels like it's been flipped on its head and that the technology is driving accounting. And so I felt that it was super important that I understood if I got into, you know, the the, the deep mind of the technology developers of those software developers and understood how they thought that that would help me to understand how that fit into my accounting firm and then help other practitioners to understand how you innovate, what drives you to innovate, and then how do you facilitate that in your firm? And I really feel like that, especially right now with you know, the incredibly fast paced uh, of you know, evolving technology, we have to understand these principles if we're gonna survive. Yeah, well, all right. That's an amazing topic, and I, I know that you, uh, you've got some things you're going to share with us today, and you've prepared to share. But I'm going to kind of tee that up for you by saying that uh, that you do not like Sally very much. Who's Sally, and why don't you like her? <laughs> yeah, so Sally, Sally is uh, a acronym that is used in accounting firms that means same as last year. Right. So when I was a fledgling accountant and I was doing my first audit work and and learning the ropes, uh, you use Sally when you're going through an engagement and you come up against a balance sheet item or, or some kind of account or something that you're looking at and you don't really know the answer. Um, or there's no change from the prior year, you would write in same as last year, S-A-L-Y. And so when I think about innovation, I feel like that S-A-L-Y is actually super dangerous. That Sally is super dangerous because what it does. Now you're is not it saying it's dangerous with accounting work papers. So I want to make sure we're clear on everybody because sometimes you have to write Sally. You're, sometimes you're you have just drawing. To write Sally. It's yeah. the mindset. It's the it's Sally the mindset. mindset yeah. That's the right. problem. It, what it ends up happening, Joe, is it becomes a crutch. It becomes a crutch. I just have to write Sally and I'm done. And hmm. honestly, as a fledgling accountant, I, I I kind of felt like there was a comfort when I would be going down through the work and I would see Sally on the work paper because I'm like, oh, I don't have to do anything with this. And now you start translating that into biz dev. You start translating that into practice, innovation. And all of a sudden you get stagnation. 
yeah. you do get stagnation. That's a hundred percent. So that's what I'm talking about is the Sally mindset. I think we need to ditch that Sally mindset and definitely there's a place for it, you know, in, in accounting, um, where it's absolutely applicable. But when we're thinking about growing our firms, uh, maintaining efficiency, staying on top of technology, that is the worst thing we can do. We definitely need to be bringing all of our processes and what we're doing and making sure that we're shaking them out. You know, once a year doing our spring cleaning and looking, is this still relevant? Is this process, is this product that we're delivering to our clients still relevant? Um, How have the rules changed? And if we're not constantly doing that and keeping an open mind, then we do end up with stagnation and we lose that competitive edge against our competitors and in the industry. So what I wanted to focus on today, Joe, is talking about innovation in accounting firms. We're very much, you know, defined by rules and regulations and process and due diligence and all the things that tend to stay the same and need to be very solid and defined, um, which makes it particularly hard to stay innovative within our industry because you have to walk that fine line between, you know, staying compliant, right, and staying innovative and thinking beyond the constraints of what, you know, what we have historically done. Because the accounting cycles do pull us into a treadmill. They do. And it's a necessary treadmill, but then we start to treat all of all of our practice as the treadmill. So that's, right. that's why I love your Sally reference. Um, because if we, you know, back to your point, if Sally becomes a mindset instead of an accounting function, which is the trap that we see everybody fall into. Um, we do. Have you also found that innovation is constrained by the calendar? I found this as I'm trying to coach firms right? They get really excited about all the changes they're going to make. And then they have the panacea of Q3, Q4. And then there's really not any time to implement anything in a sticky way before they're pulled back under again, you know, with January through April, and then just repeat the vicious cycle. And, and you know, and, and it's all, so I'm seeing in some cases, not a lack of innovation, but a lack of execution on what we innovate. Um, are you seeing the same? Yeah, absolutely. I do. And and I think part of it is systemic, of course, based on the fact that we're a very cyclical industry and we are tied to deadlines that are assigned by, you know, agencies outside of our control. And the thing is, is that we as a as citizens, right, and as professionals, it doesn't have to stay that way. And I think that we have to think bigger and we have to think, okay, if that doesn't work and that's causing an issue for our firms and our clients, what can we do and what can we do with our voices to make that change? So that's where innovation comes in. I mean, innovation at its foundation is thinking beyond what's now and thinking with a completely open mind on how do we make a situation, uh, a process better. So we have two types of innovation. Um, and I'm going to go back to school here for my my master's degree, is we have sustaining innovations. And sustaining innovations are where we're essentially creating a product or service, and we're just making incremental improvements to that product or service. So a sustaining innovation is, if you think of, I, I use, I like to use for my husband, the example of a Camaro. My husband loves muscle cars, and he restores them. And he has 
1969 Camaro convertible that he's had longer than me. We're the same vintage, <laughs> but he has had it longer than me. And I truly believe it is his true love. So he's got this beautiful Camaro from 1969 that he loves. And we spent a lot of time in it. Well, Chevy, who made the Camaro, they continue to innovate on that model of Camaro. And every time they release a new model or a new feature in that Camaro, that's a sustaining innovation. They're not creating something completely new and earth shattering. They're just improving on what they've already created. And they're looking for additional markets um, you know, that might buy the Camaro based on those incremental improvements. So the or just resell a new Camaro to the Camaro lovers because exactly, rather than having them dropped over to the Mustang or something or the Charger. Right. Yeah. To keep their customer base. So yeah. to retain those sales and make additional sales. So that is uh, sustaining innovation. Then the second type of innovation is disruptive innovation. And the one that we can all identify with right now is artificial intelligence. That's at mm. the top of our form. That is a disruptive innovation across a whole bunch of different industries because before we needed our brains and our hands to provide services. And now we have this technology that is able to do many of the things that, that people have done. Other types of disruptive innovation, and let me go to the definition first, a disruptive innovation is something that shakes it up. It actually makes a product or service that already existed irrelevant. So it's something that changes the industry, changes the product, changes the service. So what was happening before becomes unnecessary. So examples of that are uh, uh, Airbnb. So we had the hotel industry that, you know, you booked a hotel, you went and stayed at the hotel. Well, all of a sudden Airbnb came out and they shook up that entire industry because now they provided a more affordable way to vacation um, they provided a new revenue stream for folks like you and me, and they shook up that entire industry by offering something that had never been offered before that was completely outside of the conventional business model for hospitality and you know lodging. Another example is Uber, right? Uber did the same thing to taxi companies, right? Um, shook it up, made it a low cost. Uh, and then the other one that, that is a big one that I think everybody will identify with uh, is the iPod, right? We used to buy vinyl records, which now are starting to come back because of their novelty. Um, but vinyl records, and then we had cassette tapes, and then we had CDs. Those were all sustaining innovations, right? Because they were basically saying you're still buying a tangible product and putting it into a player. It's a sustaining innovation. The iPod was revolutionary and disruptive because we no longer needed that physical thing that played our music, we now had a new way and a very low cost way. I mean, we're talking about spending $10 for a record. Now we spend a dollar for music that now we have. And whenever I can even take that to another play. level where they disrupted themselves with Apple music. Yeah. You know, but yes, well, and you could say Spotify tried to, uh, to disrupt them and then they countered with disrupting themselves. Uh, with Apple Music, which is the ultimate transcendence, because now not there's no device involved. It's everywhere you go, your music is is available to you, device uh, agnostic. Right. So, um, yeah. So, and and then I the thought that was going through my mind, and this is a bit of a throwback, but I always like to use the travel, the travel industry, as a little bit of a throwback. They were almost the first ones that suffered the the web disruption, 
and uh, nobody thought that entire industry could be could be shook the way it was. But you know, solutions like Orbitz and Hotels.com displaced the travel agent. Um, and and I think you know, I know some of our listeners may be younger; they don't realize that was a major profession in the United States of America. I mean, they had storefronts. You you, you couldn't drive two blocks without seeing an, a travel agency. And yet it's completely gone now, other than maybe some niche cruises or some some gig economy right. workers that that do it. You know, some of the tennis friends that my wife has do these, you know, the side out of their home with with boutique kind of, of or European vacations. But for the most part, that industry is gone. And um, even American Express was involved in it as a major arm of their business. It was in their shareholder reports every quarter and it's gone. Right. So, yeah. Um, so you, you, yes, I, we. So those are disruptive innovations. Examples There's of definitely, all of and you know, and you're saying Clayton, AI could do that to, to us to some degree. I think that that's yeah, I, I I do. I think that you know, for writing, writers are the ones. I think creatives are the ones that I'm most concerned about AI completely disrupting because you know, writing a good writer that's considered a talent and a skill and a you know, it, it's something that not everybody can do. Well, now everybody can do it. Hmm. It Everybody can many- do it in air quotes. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Everybody can do it in air quotes. Well, it's I just, accessible. you know, I just wanted a little light reading one time when I was eating sushi by myself and I thought, well, and this is a good example of it. I thought, uh, well, you know, all I really want is about 20 minutes worth of reading. So instead of going, cause I'm a big Stephen King fan, I just, uh, asked chat GPT, write, write me a short story. I can read in about 10 minutes in the Stephen King style. And it did wow. in seconds. And it wasn't a bad story. It wasn't as good as Stephen King, but it was a good little read while I ate my sushi. And, you know, right now, as we're recording this podcast, you might be listening years from now, but as we're recording it, Hollywood, you know, SAG is is striking over this very issue, um, as well as other artificial intelligence issues. And rightfully so. I mean, if I I was a, a writer or a, you know, as an actor... I would be very concerned right now because now AI can create, uh, you know, an avatar that looks like me, that sounds like me. And it's very realistic. And, and my likeness should belong to me. And that's, 100%. you know, and, and they sell their likeness and they sell their, you know, their, their voice and everything else as part of their, their product. And now that could be displaced or, or you know, um, digitized. Uh, so, so it's going to be interesting to watch all of this play out. Um, yes. And, but to your point, this artificial intelligence could be the accounting industry's Uber if we're not careful. Um, So someone said, and it did not originate with the accounting industry. It originated somewhere else. I need to re-research it. But, uh, but someone applied to the accounting industry that, you know, will AI displace the accounting industry? And the response was it will displace accountants that don't use it. So, right. Which uh, that's actually in the book that I'm listening to right now on Audible. We're going to talk about it in just a minute, but I can't remember where it originated. It originated in in some other industry. So, um, but it's applicable, and it's it's a good it's a good takeaway for I think from from this disruptive innovation comment of yours is it, it's only disruptive you know, if we don't leverage it. That's right. I mean, it, 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 that's right. I think that you know, disruptive innovation can hurt if you're not the one doing the disrupting. Or you're not the one, or you're not somebody who has embraced that innovation and is is jumping on it. And that was Clayton Christensen said that, and he's kind of one of the 
but he's, he's, he's the one who coined the term uh, disruptive innovation. So challenges that firms are facing, um, you know, we, we talked about that balancing rules and innovation, allocating time. That's a big one that I hear. Is, and, and as you said, because we have that cyclical nature of our profession, when do we find the time and how do we foster a culture of innovation? Well, I would say that the root of it is communication, is making sure the culture in your firm invites your team to present new ideas in a safe way that is going to be, you know, well received and taken seriously. So, you know, you bring people onto your team based on the core values and the mission and vision of your company. Well, if you bring on the people that are matching that and then you shut down their ideas and what they're thinking, you know, their their ideas and 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 how they can make the business better, then you're not really taking full advantage of what it is that you hired them for. And you can get into a period of, of stagnation. So a couple of ways that you can foster that is to, to create time for your team to think outside the box and think about how things can be better, right? So an example could be having uh, innovation ses sessions or ideation sessions where you bring the group together to focus on a particular problem within the firm. How can we bring this? How can we make this uh, solve this problem? Uh, how can we increase client satisfaction? How can we improve efficiency? And then give them the space to have these conversations. Um, a lot of very progressive firms are actually giving their teams. I've heard some giving as much as 20 percent of their time to exploration and experimentation within their firm. So, yes, you know, we're all, we've typically been about the billable hour. We're trying to move away from that hopefully as an industry, many of us are, um, towards you know, outcome-based or value-based delivery to our clients. Um, we should do the same thing with our team. If you don't give them the time to breathe and to really think about a problem and really think through out-of-the-box solutions, you, you really stifle the possibility of the next big idea and helping to assimilate into this new age in accounting. So you could have those design thinking workshops where you're thinking outside the box, conduct brainstorming sessions. There's lots of different ways that you can really um, encourage that. There's a great author that I've been reading, Michael Lurick, and he's written this really cool book uh, called um, uh, Design Thinking and Innovation Metrics. And I think it's awesome for accounting professionals. And I think that we talked about it on the podcast before, Joe, what I love about it is that it pulls in ideas about how you can innovate and foster that culture of innovation, but then it ties it back to metrics, which as accountants, we're all about show me the numbers, right? So it ties it back to ways that you can actually measure that, engage in within your firm, how you're doing on that end. So I really feel like accountants the first thing to do is to open your mind and start having those conversations at every level within your team, from your junior accountant intern all the way up to the senior partners, to be talking about how have things changed in our industry with our clients in technology and how are we going to react to those changes? Are we going to put our head in the sand and just continue doing the things the same way we did last year and continue our relationship with Sally? Or are we going to open our minds and start to put you know, measures in place to change our culture so that we're ready for the next 
and that we are expecting the unexpected because that's where we are as an in, as an industry right now. Yep, and expecting the unexpected actually is a good tee up for the my fa- favorite social post I'm going to share a little bit later. So, um, awesome. Yeah, so it's kind of funny how that all kind of came together because that was not planned. But I know we're at the end of this segment. I'm going to make uh, one other suggestion. Uh, you may have in your hopper, but we may have run out of time is um, if you can afford it. And as soon as you can afford it, do it, have at least one person in practice development, practice advancement, we like to call it, who is not a producer so that during the high production times, they can continue to carry the torch of planning through and get you caught up after you come out of the, your own fog of war. We have a fog of war here in our business cycle. It runs from May 1st to, to Ju- July 15th, right? But we have people on our team who aren't pulled into the fog of war. And they give us an update on where, where we are with our year-round projects. Um, and we can just, just pick right back up on July 15th without having to re- Without, without having a warm-up period from July 15th all the way to September before we start getting in our groove again, right? The, the, right. the machine yeah. of innovation never stops. I think that the smartest hire I ever did in my firm was a project manager. We call it the, the role of the operations manager. And that was her job, was to come in and manage the projects that we were working on, uh, look at process improvement, and to when we came out of that fog, remind us of the things that had happened during that time because she could focus on our firm and our processes and what we were doing while we worked, we focused on getting the work done. So 100% agree with that, Joe. Um, A lot of firms are starting to add a process improvement kind of department within their firms and that is their sole purpose and it's it's brilliant. It's exactly yes, what they Yes, it need. is. And especially in the sense that process is all encompassing. If we think of process, not just in the, the accounting and tax cycles, but in every way that the practice operates, then yes, that's the perfect kind of role. And listen, if you can't afford it full time, final kind of final uh, comment to close this out, there are people that will do this as contractors until you can, yes. and then once you engage them, the innovation will lead to growth and the growth will create some surplus revenues that you can invest back in and maybe hire a person. Um, All right. So fantastic. Let's be innovators. Uh, Those books that uh, Heather mentioned will be available. The links to those will be out on water.com slash podcast here very soon. Um, So you can go read those books. Um, And then the other book I would recommend, I've recommended many times here on the podcast is The Working Genius, Patrick Mm -hmm. Lencioni because uh, he talks about ideation, activation, and implementation, which are uh, a framework for your brainstorming to make sure you act upon what you brainstorm and do it wisely. And then the other book I would recommend based on what Heather said is Patrick Lencioni's Death by Meeting, uh, because all meetings are not of the same nature. And Heather gave you some examples of ones that are not administrative, non-operational, non-production. When do those occur and what pattern do they occur and how are they structured? That book will help you with that. All right. So next segment, you and I are TV and movie buffs, and we yeah. like to extract awesome quotes from TVs and movie, uh, TV shows and movies. So um, I'm going to lead out with mine, and then you can share what you've got. Uh, I w- went on vacation for a couple of weeks, and since re- it relaxes me to watch TV, I thought, well, why don't I just re-watch as many episodes of The House of Cards in order uh, as I can? Because I loved that show when it first came out. 
So I've watched maybe seasons one and two, just kind of, you know, hanging around on vacation a little bit in the cracks. And uh, Frank Underwood's quite the one liner, you know, that character who uh, I won't ruin it for you if you don't know who that is. But he's just a politician. We'll leave it at that. Um, He said when he was negotiating something with Russia, I believe, um, he said, you can't turn a no into a yes without a maybe in between. That's a good quote. Um, and, and I like the quote, especially in the context of what you just shared, because a lot of times innovation requires negotiation, negotiating with leaders within the company, or sometimes even negotiating with the owner of the company to get from what is their instinctive no to the yes that they need to embrace. And I think a lot of times we think the art of negotiation is flipping the no to a yes. Um, frankly, I think we as Americans believe that that's how change is made, that we, we believe that you make change by making points and by changing people's mindsets, by inundating them with irrefutable facts so that they have to flip the paradigm of their thinking on a dime. Um, and it's the reason we shout instead of talk in this country right now. Um, and it's the reason we talk more than we listen. So um, Daryl Davies, uh, Davis, excuse me, uh, was somebody I interviewed recently. I would recommend going back and listening to that podcast because he understands this concept, I think, better than anybody on earth. And I'm not using that hyperbolically. He gets people to, uh, you know, as a black man, he convinces people to leave the KKK. And he's still doing that work today, effectively, talking about turning a no to a yes with a maybe in between. But he tells you that in those cases, the dialogues take months, if not years. But it doesn't take years in a normal situation. You know, he's he's uh, deconstructing years of brainwashing with those folks. The KKK is essentially a cult, right? And he's having mm-hmm. to to take the brainwashing way. In our case, we just have to convince people to see things a little differently. And we won't get into an, our entire art of persuasion. My point is, that was my favorite quote. And that's why it was my favorite quote. All right. What, what did you bring right. to the table? So I started watching Foundation, which is on Apple TV, and it's based on Isaac uh, Asimov's books, which I've learned were written back in the 50s. So it's pretty incredible that this sci-fi um, show and, and, and these books are just so... Uh, that it, it, it's pretty amazing that he wrote them that long ago. Um, so... Uh, the quote is change is frightening, especially to those in power, which I think perfectly dovetails into what you brought up. And in the scene, he's talking to uh, he is talking to Gail, who is his protege about he has just been banished to the outer reach, which is way out on the outside of the galaxy, um, because he has prophesied that the empire, which is, you know, the, the royal family that's in power of the entire, entire galaxy, um, is going to fall. And so instead of listening- and By the way, there's no spoiler alert in that. He says that in the first 20 minutes of the yes, first episode. Right. This is from <laughs> yes, episode exactly one. Right. This is yeah, from exactly. episode one. Yeah, exactly. The prophecy comes out at the very beginning. Exactly, no spoiler alert. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so he's explaining to, uh, to his protege, um, you know, why- they were so threatened by this rather than taking the opportunity to say, because he did give them, you know, he did give them an alternative. He gave them an alternative to actually change the course of, 
of the future. And they declined and instead banished him for basically blasphemy, right? Mm -hmm. And so he was saying that, you know, change is frightening for those in power, saying that they're afraid, right? It's terrifying to them because it's threatening their very existence and what led them to that power. And so them having to change introduces the possibility of failure. And so rather than thinking we're going to have to change because this is it, they're just going to basically put on their earmuffs, their hands over their ears and, and, you know, start saying, la, 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 la. So, you know, promoting change has to come from the top of the, of the organization. It has to. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, this reminded me of is that we see in a lot of larger firms or firms that have been a lot around for a long time, we have partners and people's in lead, people in leadership, they're looking at their way out to retirement. And so I feel like they need to open their minds to the fact that the next is actually the generation that's coming up in the firm. And if the firm is going to survive, which is ultimately their legacy, they've got to open up their mind to the fact that things don't stay the same and what worked and they did it brilliantly based on the circumstances as they were building their firm, maybe doesn't work anymore. And so, yeah, so that was, that was my quote. And there's a little bit of narcissism underneath that quote, right? Not just in the storyline, but I think in the truth behind it. Um, You know, I think sometimes the best thing for a company is for a a founder to realize when they need to stop leading the company. Yes. Just as Scott Cook did with Intuit, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, at some point he must decrease so the company can increase. And that's natural and it's part of the evolution of things. So I love that quote. All right. So now book segment. Um, and uh, I'm going to cover, uh, I'm going to take this one. Uh, I, I uh, read, and I use read loosely because I listen to most of the books that I read, but uh, I, I listened slash read uh, Quantum Supremacy by uh, Michio Kaku, uh, who is going to be our featured keynote presenter at Scaling New Heights 2024. So if you don't know the name, I'll let you kind of kind of Google it. It's M-I-C-H-I-O. K-A-K-U, but, um, you know, and he's a, he's a theoretical physicist who uh, was part of the process of discovering quantum physics uh, in the 20th, 21st centuries. And that, of course, we're still unpacking that a bit, uh, particle entanglement, things like that. But when you start hearing about quantum computers, you have to understand that our speaker at Skelly New Heights coming up is one of the people that discovered the physics behind the quantum computer. So, this book, Quantum Supremacy, talks about quantum computing, and its subtitle is, in essence, how it's going to completely change the world. And he's not being hyperbolic. Um, before I read this book and did a little bit of homework prior to the book, I thought a quantum computer was just like the next version of a Pentium. You know, it's going to displace the Pentium chip. Um, but it's actually a completely different kind of technology. It's It's... It, it 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 cannot even compare. Like the when you were talking about sustaining innovation versus disruptive innovation, this is not sustaining innovation. Where we now have the CD-ROM instead of the cassette uh, or the iPod instead of the CD-ROM, this is disruptive innovation. This will completely displace computers as we experience them, as we know them today. And it's not theoretical. Quantum computers exist. They just only exist at the multi-billion dollar investment level. So companies have them, but we can't afford them. IBM has one. I believe he said Amazon has one um, and a few others. 
Now, and then it's, uh, so the goal is, you know, how do we, how do we package this into a container, just as we had to do with the mainframes to the PC? How do we package quantum computing into a container, to a form factor that everyone can use and carry around with them? But quantum computing doesn't even use chips, uh, computer chips. Uh, it, it's, it's, it uses something and I can't begin to understand it. I appropriated the information as best I could in lay terms, uh, where the scientific term is called quantum entanglement. And the lay understanding of it, and I know this boggles the mind, but scientists have learned that there could be an atomic particle on Earth interacting with an atomic particle in another galaxy, and they are talking to each other. They're interacting with each other in, in, from one galaxy to another, you know, millions of light years away. And so if you can, if these two atoms can be interacting with each other, I use talking figuratively, if they can be interacting with each other uh, millions of light years away from each other, then how fast could we process information between California and Georgia or just inside of the, the, the quantum computer itself? faster than the speed of light. Right now, data moves when you're on a Zoom call with Australia, the data is moving across internet fiber optic networks at the speed of light, 125,000 or so miles per second. Um, but now it will be so so fast uh, that it is not figuratively, but literally instantaneous. It's existing, the data is existing in Australia and Georgia at the same time. Um, and uh, another way of, of understanding quantum physics, and, and again, this is understanding without understanding it, is there's a problem with Newtonian physics that, in, in traditional physics, that if I shoot an arrow and I measure the distance of the arrow to the target, I'm always measuring the distance to the target in half. It's now 50% toward the target, then 50% more, and I'm always cutting the distance in half. Well, in that kind of physical measurement, it will never actually reach the target. Um, it'll just always be half the distance from its previous location. So obviously that measurement of physics doesn't actually measure reality. It just measures it so close to reality that it, its immaterial discrepancy, as we would say in the accounting world, is infinitesimal. So, uh, but what is the actual measurement? this is another mind boggling thing, just like an atomic particle can interact with another atomic particle in another galaxy. Um, the, the arrow arrives at the target before it left the bow. That's the actual quantum physics. Um, so, because remember space and time are the same thing. It's the time it takes to carry for the arrow to move from the bow to the, to the actual target is a measurement of a combination of space and time. And time then becomes malleable to space. Um, now, I'm not saying we can all understand theoretical physics. Uh, I'm not Sheldon Cooper, and I don't know that anybody listening to our podcast is. Uh, Michio uh, is an actual real-life Sheldon Cooper, or he would say Sheldon is a fictitious him. He gets it. Other people like him get it. Stephen Hawking, a contemporary of his, uh, who he interacted with regularly, got it. But all we have to understand is there's some mysterious force here called quantum physics that we don't have to understand any more than we have to understand how a TV signal got to our television through the airwaves 
before there was fiber optics. I don't understand how that happened. I don't understand radio waves. We don't have to understand it. We just have to understand it exists. And we have to understand that it will change everything in our world because we're talking about we're talking about processing information billions of times faster, um, incomparably, inconceivably faster than we do today. So what are some of the practical impl- uh, implications of that? Well, in the negative sense, uh, quantum computers can crack the uh, can crack distributed ledgers. Blockchains are now no longer secure. Um, and that's wow. unfortunate because mm-hmm. blockchains were supposed to be the Fort Knox of the future of data security and privacy. They're no longer safe. Uh, and if they're no longer safe, then in the, in the negative sense of the world, no computer system on planet Earth is safe. No government system is safe. A quantum computer could basically do anything it wants to do and go anywhere it wants to go. You combine that with artificial intelligence and you start getting the stuff of sci-fi. So there's the, 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 the warning shot of this, which Michio covers in his book. Um, the positive side of it is um, the medical research that we're doing right now to solve cancer the reason we haven't solved cancer is because the computers that need to process the information, um, t- it would take them thousands of years to process enough data points to find the combination of factors that create certain cancers, where it would take a quantum computer minutes, not thousands of years, but minutes to do the same thing. So once quantum computers become mainstream in the medical industry, we may actually have a cure for cancer and Alzheimer's and various other diseases. Um, So medical implications are huge. Solving the mysteries of the universe is huge. Mysteries like dark matter that literally holds our universe together. Nobody understands it. String theory, which in nine seasons of Big Bang Theory, Sheldon was never able to solve because it can't be solved right now. Um, You know, uh, a single equation that defines our universe perhaps could be. Um, you know, technologies that allow us to move faster than the speed of light, um, warp technologies, for example, space folding technologies, both of which are the stuff of sci-fi, but are also predictive in nature, um, could be what quantum computers allow us to do. So we, we're through artificial intelligence combined with quantum supremacy, we are truly approaching a technological singularity. The world as we know it now will not be the same world, even comparatively, 50 to 100 years from now. It'll be incomparatively different, um, inconceivably uh, different. So I would encourage everybody to read the book. um, And I would encourage, I know, and I would encourage everybody to come to Scaling New Heights if you want to actually interact with Michio. He's going to have a QA segment from the main stage, and you can actually talk to Sheldon Cooper about the universe. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds like you, it's not light reading. <laughs> Definitely not light it's reading. surprisingly lay term. Well, uh, that's it, the great thing about Michio is that I've seen him on, on several, um, you know, television shows and interviews and he does, he brings it, he makes it understandable. So I'm really excited to see him to present at Scaly next year. Um, Absolutely. So, all right. So we've got uh, two more segments and they're quick ones here. Uh, I'll let you lead out. We have our favorite social posts of yes. the week. Uh, what, what was yours? 
So mine was from that bookkeeper on Twitter. And um, they said, no software will have every feature you want. I've wasted so much time taking grasses greener approach to my tech stack, assuming the next one will be perfect. I think I'm slowly gaining wisdom, some wisdom with age, although the age seems to be outpacing the wisdom so far. It's true for a lot of us. So uh, they go on to say, old me, jump to the next shiny option, spend a day learning the new software, get nothing accomplished. New me, ask myself if I really need to solve this problem, see if I can solve the problem in a different way, find a way to build the feature myself. And, you know, where the, what this comes down to is intentionality, right? Intentionality uh, and innovation is key. You don't just go chasing after what's new. You need to make sure that there is a problem that needs to be solved um, and, and an understanding of where it fits into your goals, your strategic plan, what you want in your business and in your life. And never forget that middle step going from ideation to activation and then implementation. And that's where mm. most of us go sideways as we jump right from the ideation to the implementation without taking that time to discern whether or not it's a good strategic decision to move forward. Love that. Absolutely love that. Mine, came from, uh, mine comes from Megan Tarno, who uh, said, uh, I need to get over my sadness at people not being who I thought they were. They just are who they are. And I need to accept it. He, they, she didn't say respect it because maybe who they are is not respectable. Mm. Um, but what I'm hearing in her is the wisdom of the, you know, sort of the serenity prayer as it's called, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to, to know the difference. I mean, most people know that saying right. because of the 12 step programs and stuff like that. There's, there's an ex there's a there's a wisdom and a liberty in acceptance and acceptance is not endorsement um, and acceptance is not necessarily even passive acceptance doesn't mean that I, that I don't protect myself acceptance is just understanding that I can't change people and um, and if you've ever been married you understand that very well because you might have gone into the marriage trying that a lot of people do and then understanding that accepting, accepting uh, your spouse's differences, your child's differences, um, and, and, and also accepting the things inside yourself, which, you know, we all have those, those, uh, those elements of ourself that we, we have to try to, uh, to manage, but, you know, we can't change. Right. And that kind of gets us back to the 12 step recovery piece of it. Right. Um, so I love that. It's extremely wise. And, and I would encourage everybody when you see the link that's posted out at water.com slash podcast, not just look at what she wrote, but look at all the different things that people wrote about what she wrote. Um, it might help you with the chapter of life that you're, that you're in right now. So on the last segment, we always like you to close out since this is called the Water Report podcast yeah. with your favorite article. You're the senior editor of the Water Report. What's your favorite article that came out recently? So Kevin Woods has been doing a series of articles and he is focusing on economics. So I think that economics, you know, especially accountants and bookkeepers that get kind of stuck in like the day to day, he does a really great job of kind of reminding us about the big picture. And so he's done in his series, understanding micro macroeconomics, microeconomics, and their crucial role in consultancy, which is really not just looking at the strategic objectives of your client 
or your firm, but taking into account the economic factors that are happening outside your firm and making sure that that, you know, that that's something that they, that you are looking at as you're advising. Um, and I, what I loved about it was that a lot of us, you know, maybe didn't take economics in college or we're not familiar with it. And he just does such a great job explaining what it is and how you can apply it to business and your life. So love, love, love that. I am really looking forward to more articles from Kevin. That's fantastic. All right. Well, Heather, it has been it has been fantastic to be with you over the last 45 minutes here. Um, and I was a little, a little bit of withdrawal symptoms since we haven't done this since May. So I thoroughly enjoy these conversations that we have. And I look forward to doing this again. And I'm sure everybody else listening in to hearing it again very soon. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.